We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Yes, in the era of Donald Trump, the generals are increasingly running their own wars. A lot of people seem to think this is a good idea. As historians look back on America in the 20-teens, one common thread will certainly be the widespread pervasiveness of the worship of all things military, what our guests called the excessive exaltation of a warrior class in a democracy. As President Trump remarkably, willingly yields all foreign policy decision-making to the generals, reducing any traditional role of the State Department, the vital principle of civilian control over the military, which America's founders insisted on, has been seriously eroded. Our guest, Danny Sherson, notes in a new essay called The Hazards of Military Worship, We usually imagine the threat of military control over decision-making as an aspect of opaque autocracies, which is not the same as a democracy. There are military coups that happen in the world, and the military runs the state. Well, that is not the way it's supposed to be here. Here we are in an allegedly Republican system of government, that's Republican with a small r, in which traditional American civilian control seems to be withering on the vine. Our guest today says it's dangerous to defy, to deify, I should say, any public institution, let alone the country's Bureau of Violence. This should be an interesting discussion. Well, it's an old expression. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when that approach somehow doesn't work, the hammer wielder oftentimes hits harder and more often and looks for more hammers, (laughs) as the result is it doesn't always work and often makes problems a heck of a lot worse than they started out to be. Danny Sherson, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. Danny Sherson is a U.S. Army strategist and former history instructor at West Point. Sherson served tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq and has written a memoir and critical analysis of the Iraq War called Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. You may not be a five-star general, but you do have some credentials as far as knowledge of what works and what doesn't. Specifically, I refer to the fact that you commanded a cavalry troop of about 85 soldiers in southwest Kandahar province in Afghanistan in 2011, and you led another unit in Iraq in 2006-2007. 
As you undoubtedly ran into some challenging situations, you were, as you write, a captain dug into a tough fight in a dangerous district. So what did you find yourself wanting from your superiors? Well, uh, as you say, I'm not a five-star general, and undoubtedly some will read my essay, probably within the military, and ask the question, you know, who is this guy, you know, a lowly major, to question national policy? Uh, so I'll start off by saying I speak as a, as a citizen uh, in an unofficial capacity right now based on my own experiences and what I'm about to discuss doesn't reflect the official policy or position of the Army as part of that. Yeah, sure. Now that that's out of the way, I'll, I'll get back to your question about Afghanistan. In 2011, uh, Kandahar province was a nightmare. And I was uh, in command of two outposts, uh, about 85 to 100 total soldiers, depending on the day. And we were in a serious fight with the, with the Taliban. What I needed or what I asked for from my superiors is very similar to what the generals in charge of any theater of operations are going to ask for to complete the mission given to them, and that's more. More of everything. I wanted more soldiers. I wanted more supplies. I wanted more uh, air assets and anything that I thought might protect the soldiers and might make life a little easier for us in Kandahar province and hopefully uh, limit the ability of the enemy to, uh, to harm uh, the people or, or, or my soldiers, quite frankly. And what I mentioned in the essay is never do we ask at the level of, say, a captain, which I was at the time, well, what about the mission? Is it achievable? Are the ends, ways, and means in balance? And that's sort of where I was going with the essay. Yeah, and uh, it's, of course, you being on the ground with your... Uh, you know, your earthly being there, your your flesh, your blood, you want to protect that. And you want to protect that of your comrades, no doubt about it. So for you, of course you would want more. But you're right. The question is, you know, what what are we doing there? And, you know, it certainly brings to mind uh, Vietnam that, uh, of course, that's what the uh, the guys on the ground wanted there, to, to save themselves and to save their buddies. But the questions had to be asked about why this is going on and, and what can be done about, uh, you know, saving these people's uh, lives and, and should they be there. In every war, there are great masses of soldiers on the ground, in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt would say. It seems these days most Americans would accept that vantage point uh, puts you in a more knowledgeable position than we mere civilians back home. In what ways does that not provide a better understanding of the big picture of the war itself than those who you describe as historians, analysts, and thoughtful critics, even ones who haven't been within thousands of miles of the war zones? You know, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's one of the great myths of, of policymaking that Americans kind of fall for, which is, you know, nobody knows about war more than the military guys. Nobody knows about strategy more than the military officers. In fact, you know, I call it worship and, and adulation, right. and I mean that. Yeah. Sometimes it can be hazardous. Oftentimes, Americans will trust the general far more than a politician. That sounds really nice if you wear the uniform as I do, but I'm not certain it's really a positive thing for the republic. I'll tell you one reason why military advice, uh, really at any level, is sometimes problematic. For example, we'll start with me. We'll start with a captain at the time.
our province. He laughs me all the time. Oh, what what's really going on with the war? You know, these liberal politicians, and right. inevitably that becomes a pejorative. Yes. Liberal politicians, you know, they're asking questions. They don't know what's going on. Tell us the truth. And uh, the truth is, I know a whole lot about a sub-district of Zari District in Kandahar province of Afghanistan during one snapshot of a moment. In the essay, I talk about most soldiers seeing the war as though they're looking for a straw at 30,000 feet. I mean, that's the truth. We don't necessarily see the broad picture. Now, one might ask, well, don't the generals? And indeed, there are some extraordinarily talented generals. Don't, right. don't get the wrong impression. There are some scholars up there, some people I have an enormous amount of respect for. Right. But when given command of a war zone, of a theater of operations, most are going to see their own theater as the primary responsibility and protection of their soldiers, completion of the narrower mission. So unfortunately, sometimes the view of the sergeant or the captain is not all that much different when it comes to military advice or strategic advice, which is a better way of putting it, than the general. There have been rare exceptions, but I would argue that historically, as I do in the essay, as well as many cases in the, quote, war on terror, uh, that has been the case. But one last thing about that is I, I think many Americans, whether they mean to or not, almost use the term civilian itself as a pejorative or uh, something less than deserving of our respect, when there are an enormous number of talented scholars, historians, social scientists, who might have something to add to this debate, but when we dismiss them because they didn't or don't wear the uniform, I think that's very dangerous for uh, for liberal democracy, small l. Yeah, interesting. As you say, the uh, looking at the situation from way up high through a straw is an interesting description, which I hadn't thought of before, that, you know, you see your particular area, um, but but not the big picture. And history does count. I mean, I, I read about World War I quite a bit, and it's, it's important. One can imagine, you know, you can't really see uh, <laughs> the forest through the trees that you're in, in a way, because, uh, you know... The, the, Having no perspective on it uh, doesn't allow you to have a perspective on it. And, you know, this has to be kept in mind. And you're right. You know, there's actually here in the state of New Hampshire where the show is being recorded and broadcast, uh, there is another show, a very popular show, where every day the host worships the military, all things military, all the time. And it gets it gets kind of tedious, but... Uh, it is, it is real. It seems to be a big part of our culture. Uh, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, our guest today is Danny Sherson, who is uh, a uh, former uh, history instructor, U.S. Army strategist. We're talking about uh, perspective, uh, the hazards of military worship. And, and you write, Danny, that, quote, it's worrisome when president after president defers to and all too often hides behind the supposed wisdom of active and retired three- and four-star flag officers. Why do you say that? Well, it gets back to this idea of Americans beginning to only trust the military among the many important public institutions in our democracy. You know, I cite some statistics, and they get worse every year. You know, 70 to 80 percent have high trust in the military, and most, even more than that, you know, uh, some trust. But our other institutions, like Congress, like the institution of the 
so many politicians, you know, and, and this isn't just about our current president, who is my commander in chief, obviously, uh, but this is about executive leaders throughout our history. It has been a useful political tool in the past to what I call hide behind or push to the front respected and heroic generals. Guys who are genuinely impressive, some of whom sure. are incredibly smart. Yeah. Give away your civilian control, which is there for a reason. Yes. And uh, put forward these generals and say, well, the generals told me to do it. So, I mean, if you don't like what's happening, blame them. It's a lot easier to do that than to take on the responsibility <laughs> yourself as a politician because you, uh, the military immediately has a, a, a core level of respectability going into the situation. Meanwhile, people die. You know, <laughs> and and so here are these presidents, one after the other, ducking responsibility. And we have uh, women losing their husbands, husbands losing their wives, mothers losing their children. And when presidents just hide behind saying, well, the general asked for this, the general said that, that's that's not a democracy. That's not a republic. And the founders, whom I have nothing but huge respect for, specifically didn't want that. They wanted civilian control. They insisted on civilian control of the military. And you write that civilian control of the military and of the policy-making process that goes with military action is not just a constitutional imperative, but desirable for thoroughly practical reasons. And you also say that Americans have gotten to a place where it seems they trust only soldiers, and that observation uh, ought to inspire distress about the direction of our public institutions. You point out that military spending this fiscal year exceeded $600 billion, or 12 times the budget of the State Department, which is, in fact, tasked with carrying out foreign policy and that the president's proposed budget calls for even uh, less, even that low figure for the State Department to be cut by a third. As a military person yourself, why does this uh, huge budget for the military and a drastically cut budget for the State Department uh, so concern you? It concerns me on a number of levels. I'll start out by uh, quoting our current Secretary of Defense, uh, an, an avid reader, uh, and, and, and an intellectual, quite frankly. He, uh, he gave an interview a number of years back where he said that if, if you cut the, the State Department budget, you're going to have to buy me more bullets. At the time, he was a, a four-star general in the Marine Corps. And, and it was a really great comment, you know, from uh, a serving officer who normally would be asking for more, more, more. But he was saying, actually, I really need these other interagency partners. So, so that's the first thing is if diplomacy's not front and center, we're not going to win counterinsurgency, hybrid wars. You pick the title, the gray zone, whatever the buzzword of the day is for the types of wars we fight. And the reality is wars are uh, an extension of politics by other means, to quote Klaus with. But something else bothers me about it. The world watches. They do. The Arab street, oh, yeah. so to speak, watches. Yes. Our partners, our adversaries, they watch. And if the United States military budget is 12 times a still shrinking... State Department and USAID budget, then isn't the perception going to be that foreign policy, when conducted by the United States, by its very nature, will be militarized? Hmm. And I wonder if that is the message we want to be sending to the world. I mean, if we want to be honest brokers, as we often say we do, in things like the Israel-Palestine 
spending is deeply troubling. And I'll, and I'll say one last thing, which is I fought two counterinsurgencies. And again, I was from 30,000 feet looking through the straw, right. but I rarely, and I mean very rarely, saw a State Department rep, an agriculture rep, someone from USAID stepping in for a whole-of-government approach, which largely I was conducting uh, on my own with the resources available to the military. And I'll tell you, we accomplished some amazing things. We tried our hardest, little engine that could, you could call us. But in the end, the military is not always the best tool for a comprehensive 360-degree foreign policy. You know, you made me think of so many things, Danny Sherson. It's uh, seeing soldiers on the field and, and then doing things on their own, seeing kids who need food, who need housing or something like that, and doing something about that. That's not a military uh, strategy. And we've all heard of uh, gunboat diplomacy, which started uh, about 100 years or so ago, that, uh, you know, just doing everything by military answer, it, it just can't work. I mean, you look at so many situations where there simply is no military solution. Obama talked about that, and we'll get to uh, uh, the pressures that he felt uh, from the military and, and what that did to our policy there. But it just, you can't just have uh, uh, gunboat diplomacy. I mean, military policy just hitting everything, attacking everything. And I don't know about you, but but I find if you criticize the military if you're saying things like i'm saying now people say what are you a wimp you know are you afraid of the being tough we gotta be strong great make america great again means being strong again making the world fear our strength using our military strength what are you afraid of do you run into people like that danny i'll bet you do uh absolutely I get away with a lot, <laughs> True. whether it's right or wrong. I think it's wrong. I get away with a lot because I wear a uniform. Right. I get away with a lot because I have you know, a three-letter uh, MAJ in front of my name as an acronym. Uh, uh-huh. But the reality is, if you are a progressive or if you have any sort of dissenting views about foreign policy and strategy, there has been a comprehensive campaign to label progressives or, or even skeptics as un-American, unpatriotic, yes. not loving the troops properly. Yes. And that's a dangerous game. It's a political, as a political tool, it's unbelievably effective, as we've seen uh, really since 1968, I would argue. There, there's yeah. a dominance of hawks in, in power, and, and to be branded as a dove is really the, it's the worst thing that could, could happen to you. And that's why I think there's a bipartisan consensus oftentimes on hawkish policies, but this isn't about Republicans and Democrats. I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. I'm talking about broader issues here. But uh, absolutely, I run into that. There's been a, a campaign of feminization uh, of the uh, dissenting, usually the dissenting left, but really of, of anyone who is skeptical of foreign policy. I think it's highly dangerous in a democracy to play those sort of games with uh, matters of life and death and war and peace. And, uh, and I've, I've seen the negative outcomes when we play that game. It's so interesting politically. We'll just briefly dip into the political waters. Rand Paul, who was running for president as Republican, I frankly thought he had some sensible foreign policy ideas in talking about diplomacy and that there's not a military solution to everything. And then on the other side, you had uh, Hillary Clinton, who I think, I, I have to think, 
that she felt like she needed to look tough. She needed to look tough. That's why she was a hawk on everything. She was a really a super hawk. You know, just there was a, a military solution to so many problems. I disagree with her very strongly on that. But just you're right now in this political environment, dealing with the perception of, of looking uh, wimpish or, or whatever, it's, it's really dangerous to get what America wants, which is, you know, peace and justice in the world and not be afraid of attacks from ISIS and, and terrorists around the world. You know, is it going to work? Let, you know, I always think, you, you, really, if you have a problem, you figure out what a solution is. Is it going to work? If you have something that doesn't work, you don't generally keep doing it again. Uh, there's a revealing history of push and pull. And it's important, as you know, you teach history, uh, push and pull between presidents and generals in the mid and late 20th century, which should be instructive uh, to us today. Let, let's start with, uh, and you talk about these fascinating uh, uh, particular instances, MacArthur and Truman in the Korean conflict. Tell us a bit about what happened there. Not, not everybody knows about uh, the, the conflict between Truman and, and uh, MacArthur on the, you know, who's calling the shots. Absolutely. So the Korean War uh, started when North Korea jumped over the 38th parallel and nearly conquered South Korea, which was essentially a, a client state of the United States, just as North Korea was sort of a client uh, of, the, of the communists in the Soviet Union. Upon this happening, the United States intervened with military force. And initially, it did not go very well. But General MacArthur got a number of army divisions over and through some tough fighting and, and actually some uh, rather effective amphibious operations, the North Koreans were pushed back over the 38th parallel into North Korea. Well, as MacArthur not only settled the, inter the international boundary, but invaded the North, he assured uh, President Truman of essentially two things during a conference on Guam. He said, the Chinese will not intervene, as was feared if we fight our way to the north and unite the two Koreas, and that uh, the war is likely to be over by Christmas, which is a fun, uh, a fun phrase we hear, we hear used all the time, yeah. always wrongly. Twice, twice was he wrong. Uh, the war lasted for uh, two-plus years after that day, and the Chinese did, in fact, intervene in massive numbers, yeah. uh, creating uh, chaos, uh, a retreat, and then eventually uh, attrition warfare, eventually a stalemate somewhere around the 38th parallel, which is really the, the same situation we're in today. Uh, that war was never officially ended. Right. So MacArthur is a West Pointer, former superintendent of the United States Military Academy. Uh, he's a god uh, in West Point lore mm. to uh -huh. this day. Uh, and he had some really impressive battles throughout his career. The guy was undoubtedly a hero in the First World War. Uh, he received Medal of Honor uh, under questionable circumstances later, but but he indeed is a, is, is a great hero of the Second World War and uh, parts of the Korean War, and, and as well as World War One. But that doesn't mean he was right about his advice. That doesn't mean he saw the full strategy. And just for a little more background, the civilian policymakers eventually did step in. Yes, Truman did assert himself and uh, and fire. Uh, fire MacArthur and, and change strategy. He had to think about how do I avoid World War III, Soviets that just tested their first bomb? How do I 
look at the Korean conflict in a broader mm-hmm. sense. What's going to happen with China? Is this worth X number of American lives? Is this worth possibly nuclear war? He was asking those questions appropriately, I think. Yeah. But General MacArthur wasn't. And General MacArthur, whether you love him or hate him, was thinking about using nuclear weapons. Yeah. I mean, think, think of the possible outcome uh, of another use of nuclear weapons that, you know, in the Korean conflict. And there's a lot of fans to this day of, of what MacArthur was recommending, and, and, and I think there's a, a certain subgroup of military officers who really kind of still feel that way, who sort of feel that if the civilians would only get out of the way, loosen the rules of right. engagement, and trust the guys who know the tough hard-as-nails soldiers and generals that we could get the job done. So I think there's still a subgroup that believes that, but uh, I would argue, and I think a consensus of historians would argue, that uh, MacArthur's advice in Korea was toxic, and uh, and it was good that Truman relieved him. Final coda, final footnote to all this, is uh, when MacArthur is fired, he's given a record-length uh, ticker tape parade in New York City upon his return. So yeah. he wasn't uh, disgraced in the eyes of the public. And I think that tells you something about Americans and the way they view the military. Yeah, that worship of, of military people. I mean, you know, in a way, one can understand. I mean, imagine being a, a French citizen after, uh, you know, Normandy happened, and you think pretty highly of the Americans who came in there and kicked out the Nazis. Yeah, you could be pretty worshipful, I imagine, because they saved your lives and your, and your country. But, uh, you know, had MacArthur gotten his way and just seen it, you know, the military solution, oh, just drop some nukes. Uh, I don't think I'd be here today. <laughs> would you? Probably none of us would be. Uh, again, if you just tuned in, Burt Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Major Danny Sherson, uh, who has a new essay called The Hazards of Military Worship. Uh, he's a U.S. Army strategist, former history instructor at West Point and served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Moving on from Truman and MacArthur, and that's so fascinating that he got the ticker tape parade after all that. I wonder how Truman felt about that. Eisenhower today is seen domestically, at least, as one of our better presidents. I certainly think he was. Uh, Foreign policy, I don't know. But before he was president, he was an acclaimed general in the Second World War. Uh, And what was his take on military rule over foreign policy? Now, here... Here was a guy who had seen battles, who had been in battles, uh, and and actually became president. So, what was his take on military rule versus uh, civilian rule over foreign policy? So Eisenhower is a really interesting case. Ironically, the president with the most military experience in this century is the one who was least likely to rely solely on military advice or yeah. to trust his generals. That tells you something. a, quote, revolt of his generals at one point over the military budget because he wanted to keep uh, conventional spending down. Uh, during the Eisenhower administration and as it ended, he warns of the dawning right. of a military-industrial complex. He is skeptical of the advice of generals. He knows that the Pentagon often asks for more than it needs. Of course. Uh, he distrusted advice from, from certain generals about uh, resorting to nuclear war, because while he threatened nuclear war on uh, on the world stage in order to keep down conventional defense spending and 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 hopefully to uh, create a situation of mutually assured destruction, whatever you think of that, there.
escalation into nuclear war through his bluff. But here's a stat that matters. Eisenhower ends the Korean War, and from that point, in 1953, when that war ends, very early in his first term, very, very few U.S. soldiers are killed in action anywhere in the world. Fewer than almost any other president in the 20th century. And, And that, in itself, is interesting. That is. He was not as hawkish or as uh, bullish on foreign policy as many civilians were, and he had a degree of confidence in himself, possibly because of his experience as a general, to question and even in some cases deny what he saw uh, as irrational military advice. So I I actually look at President Eisenhower, a Republican, mind you, as one of our more effective presidents at balancing civilian and military advice, and ultimately asserting civilian control over the military as our Constitution uh, sort of directs. Interesting. It makes me think about, uh, and I do have a lot of respect for for Eisenhower. Uh, He did a lot of of good for this country. And, you know, today, I used to think of of John McCain, Senator John McCain, as, as you know, pretty hawkish guy, but now he seems to be one of the more sane ones who understands. I mean, he was in the military. He was in a, a North Vietnamese prison for a long time. He seems to understand and be calling for cooler heads uh, fairly often. So those who have actually seen the action, uh, you know, once they're put in a position of power, but then it's it's different. It's different because for a president to rely on people who are still in the military, the generals, uh, that's a big difference because, of course, the generals, as we've been saying, they want more and more and more, understandably. But once you're out of it and in you know, elective office, a, a civilian, that gives you a different, uh, I'd say, better perspective. And our founders were brilliant in knowing the difference, how important that is. Moving on after uh, uh, Eisenhower, JFK. You, your description of the tension between JFK and the Joint Chiefs is rather interesting. I had never heard of the proposed Operation Northwoods. Do tell, please. So JFK has a very, very tense relationship with the general. There's a great article in The Atlantic some years back called JFK vs. the Military, uh, and it's been covered in some works as well. Uh, JFK was a, was a, a hero in the, in the Pacific Theater in the Navy, but he uh, was a relatively low-ranking officer and, and got out of the military and went into politics. Many of the generals uh, didn't trust him and would sort of uh, refer to him as the, the, you know, the patrol boat captain, thinking that he didn't really understand high-level military operations because he had left the military at such a young age. Uh, Operation Northwood uh, represents uh, a planned and not executed, because JFK shut it down, uh, strategy or, or operation to potentially conduct false flag attacks in Miami uh, on U.S. Uh, boats or and ships off the coast of Cuba or Florida in order to drum up public support for an invasion of Cuba. There was a, a, a large amount of obsession with uh, newly communist Cuba and its leader, Fidel Castro, who there were many attempts on his life, uh, many assassination attempts by the CIA during this period. And Kennedy himself is, is hawkish in some areas and, oh, yeah. and certainly displays sort of an obsession with uh, overturning the Castro government. However, in this case, he turned down the advice uh, approved by uh, the Joint Staff, by the Joint Chiefs, for this Operation Northwoods. Most Americans are unfamiliar with it, uh, number one, because uh, few read or have the time to read this level of uh, nonfiction or military history, and secondly, because it's 
relatively recently declassified. Oh, interesting. So JFK, uh, yeah, and interesting how hawkish he was in some ways, but uh, he he nixed the Operation Northwoods using the uh, uh, false flag operation, of which we've seen way too many in the 20th and 21st century, which, uh, oh, they're terrible. I'd like to just add one, yeah, more, please do. one more thing about Kennedy. is In the Cuban Missile Crisis, he also avoids uh, war after the Joint Chiefs and his sort of executive decision group, to a man, they argue for airstrikes and invasion. Wow. And, uh, and JFK uh, waves that off and, and later says uh, to an aide that the one thing about the advice of the general is, that they've got going for them is that if we follow their advice, we'll all be dead and there'll be no one left to tell them they were wrong. He really believed that uh, there could be apocalyptic uh, consequences for the advice of the generals, that they would inevitably escalate the war. And he would, he would essentially have argued that but the generals were in tunnel vision. They were thinking about, hmm. you know, Curtis LeMay is thinking of the problem through the lens of the Air Force. Right. What can the Air Force do? Well, the Air Force has bombs. <laughs> it ought to drop them. Uh, yeah. And and the Army is, is uh, Lyman Lemnitzer, the uh, chief of staff of the Army, or actually the head of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, he sees the problem through an Army lens. Like, well, what does the Army have? Well, we've got rifles and soldiers, so we should invade. Instead of their statutory obligation at that level, which was to provide military advice and think strategically, and and there was a, a, a they were missing that wide lens, perhaps because they hadn't been trained to think that way. Right. I would argue hadn't been trained to think critically and broadly during their long and often distinguished careers. Interesting point that uh, you know military people are trained one way. You have one particular vision, and that's understandable, but it doesn't enable, it doesn't allow for a broader vision of what's going to work, what's going to uh, protect lives of uh, American people and people in general. Very, very interesting uh, difference there. One, one last quick thing. Please. I really like your point is, uh, notably, uh, our current National Security Advisor, Lieutenant uh, General McMaster, a man that I have an enormous amount of respect for, I don't think we would agree probably, on uh, every aspect of foreign policy or foreign politics, and that's okay. We would have some probably healthy debates. However, I have an enormous amount of respect for him uh, as, as an officer, as a thinker, and as a scholar in his own right. His dissertation, which became a book called Dereliction of Duty, which is about what, what he believes was the dereliction of the duty of the Joint Chiefs to speak up and give uh, broad strategic advice to the Johnson administration during the escalation in Vietnam. It's, it's notable that we currently have, or maybe it's ironic, that we currently have a national security advisor who wrote his very first book on this topic. And he passionately argued the point that the Joint Chiefs had an obligation that they failed at. And one of the reasons they oh. failed is because they were not thinking holistically or strategically. Wow, interesting. Interesting. They do get some general, some uh, some wisdom. And uh, Kennedy, uh, y y you learned what Kennedy uh, said he would tell his successor on uh, matters like this. What was that? He essentially said that the first advice he would give his successor, and of course, yeah. unfortunately, he didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. But he said the first advice he was going to give is, is don't necessarily listen to the generals. Don't necessarily think that just because they have all the, the shiny uh, <laughs> flair on their uniforms and because... They've, uh, he calls them the brass hat. That just because they're military men doesn't mean that their advice is worth a damn. Now, that's not always true, and 
it's a broad statement, but it's, it, it is salient in a number of ways. His own experience had led him to that conclusion after only three years in office dealing with some pretty significant foreign policy crises. Well, he must have sweated just a little bit over uh, potential uh, nuclear annihilation in 1962. I mean, he didn't want to do that clearly. So we move on to uh, President Johnson. And I was, as I was thinking about preparing for this show, I was thinking about how, you know, looking back to the Vietnam War, a lot of people these days, I wonder if it's even a majority, would think, well, if we had just let the generals run things, if the darn civilians didn't get in the way, we could have won that war. And I have a feeling that that frame of mind is is currently quite popular now, that the only reason we didn't win in Vietnam is because we didn't let the military you know, when we did, the civilians interfered and didn't let the military win. And we're that that frame of mind seems to be very, very active right now. What's your comment on that, Jenny? Uh, absolutely. I, I've referred to it as the Vietnam stab in the back, man, which, of course, is a, oh, wow. a reference to the uh, yeah. to the stab in the back myth among many German military veterans after World War One who felt that they had never been defeated on the battlefield. In fact, they had been defeated and were crumbling. But they, they had never been defeated on the battlefield because they never surrendered, um, and they had never gave up much German territory, and the armistice was called by um, weak liberals, socialists, and Jews uh, back on the home front, and that's who took the legs right out from under them, and that's who lost the war. So that, that's the original stab in the back myth, and I think many military officers uh, some, a small percentage of scholars, most not taken too seriously anymore in the historical consensus, have argued for a similar myth, a stab in the back myth about Vietnam. Uh, I listened to a classmate uh, during a lesson on Vietnam in a military history class not too long ago say that the person who lost the Vietnam War was Walter Cronkite. Uh, oh and that's goodness. who we should blame because, oh you know, he, he made a statement after the head offensive that right. uh, the war wasn't going well, essentially. And I think that's a dangerous thing. It is dangerous to blame the failure of Vietnam on politicians, on the media, on hippie liberal activists. Uh, any one of those has been utterly taken apart by serious historians of the Vietnam War. I'll mention one uh, who, who talks about this at, at some length, which is uh, um, my former boss, uh, Colonel Retired Gregory Dattis, who's written two books and has one coming out on Vietnam. But the historical consensus has debunked these myths and shown that, uh, for many reasons, uh, Vietnam was, was largely an unwinnable war, and even question whether it was in the national strategic interest or a vital interest. But I, I think that those sorts of stab-in-the-back myths are dangerous, and, and here's a prediction, and, and I hope I'm wrong, mm. is we're going to see a new stab-in-the-back myth develop uh, around the Iraq surge and President Obama uh, removing troops in 2011. I think you already see oh the beginnings of a stab-in-the-back myth that you know, George Bush's surge policy had the enemy all but whipped. If only we would have stayed longer and longer and longer, then uh, then we wouldn't have had ISIS be created. So uh, stand by. I think you're going to see that myth develop uh, quite deeply over the next number of years. Oh, my goodness. That's that's really frightening. But it, it I bet you're right. I bet you're right. President Obama faced a very, very difficult situation in our already long war in Afghanistan. And you write that early in his first term, Obama asked General Stanley McChrystal 
uh, for a strategic review of options in Afghanistan. And you say he offered the president a Goldilocks dilemma. What was that? And what did the president do with that advice? So one of the problems with this whole process, uh, beyond the fact that it was lengthy, which can be a good thing, is that there were an enormous amount of leaks coming from probably within the military, within other agencies, about what was going on in the strategic review. Some of those leaks may have been strategic themselves or tactical moves. But essentially what was presented to the president by General McChrystal, then in charge of the war in Afghanistan, was options. Uh, a surge of troops that was little, a medium surge of troops, uh, and, and a, an enormous surge of troops. And essentially, you know, putting the fat finger on the middle option of surge just right. You know, give us this number of soldiers. In terms of strategy, one could argue that those are three versions of the same strategy, which is send more troops and seek a military counterinsurgency solution to the problem, a hike in the troops. In fact, U.S. uh, Army, at least, doctrine states that when you're developing course of action as a staff, whether at the battalion level or at the national level, all of your courses of action must meet the following test. And we have an acronym for it, of course, uh, and it's SFAD, suitable, feasible, acceptable, and the key one, number the fourth one, distinguishable. Distinguishable from one another, and I would argue that the three options presented by General McChrystal were not distinguishable. Yes, they had a different amount of troops, but they were the same strategy, counterinsurgency with at least a temporary infusion of more or troops. Ultimately, I think President Obama felt boxed in. He was young. He was without military experience himself. He recognized that General McChrystal, a very impressive man, was widely respected along with the military he represented. And President Obama grumbled a little, and he didn't like the leaks, and he didn't necessarily love the strategy options given to him. But in the end, he took took the Goldilocks bait, and he, he chose to surge just right. And, uh, and we see where that has led us. Obviously, success in Afghanistan has been uh, fleeting at best, at best. And now we're looking at maybe a 5,000 troop surge uh, in addition to 8,500. And all I'll say about that is I served in the Goldilocks surge in <laughs> Afghanistan in 2011 and 12 when we got up to 100,000 U.S. soldiers in it. I hope that I am wrong, but 13,000 troops, which is what the total number would be, should we add 5,000 more, um, obviously pales in comparison to the effort uh, that we had when we had 100,000 and, and still did not meet long-term success. You know, it, there was that movie a long time ago, Hearts and Minds, if you don't have the hearts and minds of the people. I mean, Afghanistan, it seems like, from what, what I understand, which isn't a lot, that there's the mayor of Afghanistan, the so-called, uh, of Kabul, the so-called president, and in Vietnam, we, we just didn't have the hearts and minds. So, you know, no matter how many people uh, we killed, no matter how many bombs were dropped, the people of Vietnam, it was their country. And I think it's largely the same in Afghanistan. It's their country. We are the outsiders. Uh, it, just a military solution. I, I don't think it's possible. I just don't think it's possible. Which brings us to the Trump presidency. Uh, I still can't believe we're saying that. It's... You, you write, it's dangerous to deify any public institution, let alone the country's Bureau of Violence. Uh, 
Yet American society is headed in that very direction along with this new president. Early on in his presidency, we lost a soldier, a Navy SEAL, Ryan Owens, in an undeclared war of highly questionable legality in Yemen. One senator with clearly impeccable military credentials, again, John McCain, questioned the value of the operation in which many people, including children, died. Tell us, please, about the president's reactions, uh, reaction through that brilliant press secretary, Sean Spicer. What are the implications of what Spicer had to say about uh, that particular incident? So I'll, I'll remain careful about comments regarding the commander-in-chief, but I, but I will speak to the statement of Sean Spicer in the aftermath of that incident and my deep fear about what that would mean taken to its logical conclusion. So essentially, uh, Sean Spicer said, uh, and quite frankly, frankly, the president tweeted similar things, that John McCain, the media, any institution shouldn't be questioning the, de- uh, the operation because a Navy SEAL was killed. And thus, to question the feasibility or the suitability of that operation is to dishonor the life of Chief Owens. Wow. I, I heard that, and I-, and I literally had to pinch myself because I thought, if that's the new standard, imagine what that means. The death of a single American serviceman means that we dishonor his life if we even ask questions about the operation. Not only we as the public, but in this case, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee with statutory obligation to observe these very events, who is a Republican in the president's own party. And he's not supposed to question the operation in Yemen. It's not a declared war with whom we are not officially at war. He's not supposed to ask questions about that because it dishonors the life of the serviceman. Well, I I heard that and and was horrified uh, and and thought, excuse me, I have served and been in uh, North Carolina Danger. I've lost soldiers, and and I do not want that standard put in place. Hmm. I remember uh, during the Vietnam War when people were protesting, uh, the other side said that, uh, that the protesters were giving aid and comfort to the enemy. And and the president this time said something about, if you question this, you're, quote, emboldening the enemy. What are your, what are your thoughts about that? It sounds like we, you know, we've been into them, but... Uh... Even if I disagreed with protesters, even if I thought the war that I was fighting was very important, what I fear more than people protesting is apathy. I uh... want a credible debate at home. I want uh, free-flowing ideas. I, I respect the right to dissent among citizens because I think, or I thought that that's what I signed up for, was to protect those very rights. And I think if we don't have the courage, and if we don't have the strength as soldiers to take some criticism and to deal with protests or articles written that question the wars we're in, I think we have to look very hard at ourselves. And beyond that, I said, the thing I fear is apathy, and that's what, that's what I fear we see in the United States today. I, I am more concerned when the public doesn't even think about us, yes. doesn't even think about the war, Absolutely. except to, you know, stand up and clap at a game when the, <laughs> you know, the field-sized flag is rolled out or they put a yellow ribbon on their car. That's all very nice, but I want Americans talking about the war. Because I, I'll tell you, when, when you lose a soldier and then you think to yourself, how would I explain what this individual died for 
when I speak to his mother, and I've, I, I've spoken to wives and I've spoken to family members of uh, soldiers that I lost, and if they ask me what uh, he was doing there, well, of course, there's always the answer. He was fighting for us and for right. his friends, and that's true, and that's all well and good. But I, I sure hope that people back home, policymakers and citizens alike, are thinking about whether the operations we are engaged in are worthwhile or within the strategic interest. So I think it's cowardly to say that uh, no one should protest or that it aids and abets the enemy to protest, question, write, criticize. I want all of those things to happen as a military man. More importantly, though, as a citizen, I want those things to be occurring. Well, we're fighting, you know, allegedly for a reason. I mean, America, the America I grew up in was about freedom. Freedom of uh, thought, freedom to protest. Other countries didn't have that. Military regimes don't have that. Uh, democracies, Republicans' forms of government have that freedom. Uh, it's about citizens, and the military is there to protect those freedoms. Uh, I, I feel that there's a widespread knee-jerk reaction today against any and all criticism of anything military, as we've been saying. You write, in fact, no matter the situation, the carnage involved or the decision making behind it, the rhetoric of praise for America's warriors, you put that in quotes, has become commonplace for our national life. And my, my sense is that this is an overreaction to the myth. And it is a myth that veterans returning from Vietnam were routinely mistreated and disrespected. Now, there was some. I, I found that terrible and erroneous. But not in general. I think people understood that, you know, you re, as they say, respected the warrior, but not necessarily the war. I, I wonder, are we overreacting to the belief that uh, veterans from Vietnam were routinely mistreated and disrespected? Is that one reason we got where we are today? I think that you're absolutely correct about that. I think that, the, that what we're seeing is an overreaction and a pendulum swing far to the right in reaction to what you call a myth and what I would call uh, definitely an exaggeration uh, yes. of the way troops are treated uh, in the aftermath of Vietnam, which was abhorrent. And uh, and certainly I wouldn't want to see that happening. I certainly wouldn't want to see my, tr my right. troops treated poorly when they return. Of course. But to, to overreact to that with this self-serving and uh, adulation, which is it's so hollow when you really think about it oftentimes. I'm not saying people don't mean it when they ask, thank me for my service right. in the airport. Right. But if you want to thank me for my service, the best way to do that is to be an engaged citizen and think long and hard about who you vote for and about what policies you stand behind. And I want you to read the paper or, or, or do something to think about what we are engaged in. Because the, the thing that I'm most afraid of is unending war, which is uh, enabled by the apathy of a, of a public. And I think that we are stepping towards that. About the term I use, warrior class, which I think a better way to probably state is a warrior caste, C-A-S-T-E. Yes. It's no accident that recently, in, in the last 10 years, uh, the Army, at least, has started to talk about a, uh, a warrior ethos and referring to each of its service members as, as warriors. Uh, we have to, you know, sort of memorize uh, warrior ethos values, and, and some of that is certainly valuable. But I don't think it's an accident that it's in this time that we started referring to ourselves as warriors. I think it has a lot to do with eliminating the draft and creating a professionalized sort of Praetorian guard uh, in our military. 
A very small percentage of people serve. They are not representative of the country at large. They are not representative geographically or in terms of class. Um, enormous portion of the soldiers in our military come from families that also serve. So I think you are seeing a, a warrior caste develop. It's not necessarily healthy because as good as many of our soldiers are, as effective as many of our soldiers are professionally, uh, I fear that they are increasingly detached from society. Uh, the, the average American has very little occasion to actually peer into military life. There are very few active duty military stations very close to uh, major metropolises, especially on the East and West Coast. And uh, the military is, is easy to view solely through uh, happy messages on Thanksgiving given back from, you know, via satellite from right. Afghanistan or large flags unfurled. Uh, or, or parades at, at military events like the Super Bowl. Uh, absolutely. Well, you know, people people say, well, if you're criticizing the military, are, what you know, that's not right because we have to beat ISIS. I mean, let's face it, ISIS is bad guys, no question. They have to be defeated and stopped somehow. We can't let ISIS win. Can they be militarily beaten in this world of full of terrorist groups? What? Do you think is the proper role of the U.S. military power in actually addressing this threat? I mean, we we don't want to give up on ISIS, and you know, people have been saying, "Well, if you criticize the military, you're supporting ISIS, or you don't want to beat ISIS." What? We, of course, we want to beat ISIS. What can we do? Do you think you have some military background? Yeah. Well, so for, first, I'd say uh, that that's a false choice. That what you're describing is a false choice that that are that's often given, which is either uh, you know unquestionably support the troops or allow ISIS to win. You know, it's, it's a dangerous uh, dichotomy that's drawn. Um, second thing I'll say is, you know, what I'm about to give is my opinion. And the whole premise of my article is you shouldn't necessarily listen to what military people have to say just because they're in the military. So I, I want you to t- people to take what I say with a grain of salt. But I, I like to think I do things strategically. I changed jobs in the Army because I wanted to look at strategy and not just tactics. With regards to ISIS, um, ISIS is two things. It's an idea, and it's a wannabe state. This is my opinion. Sure. And we have to attack both of those lines of effort. Uh, in the short term, we, but I think we refers to the international community, and quite frankly, uh, surrounding Arab, Sunni states where possible, and not just military force, not just U.S. military force. So uh, some action has to be taken against the state, the burgeoning state, or, or now the retreating Islamic state, so-called Islamic state. Uh, and the second thing to attack is the idea that's much harder, that's a much more long-term game, and paradoxically, attacking the ideology is often uh, counterproductive if you're using too much military force. So what I'm saying is there is a very delicate balance between the amount of Western, capital W, military force applied at the statelet and the level of effectiveness we have against the ideology. It's a tough balance to strike. What I would say is we should at all times do everything possible to avoid feeding the narrative of ISIS. And the narrative of ISIS is as follows. The West hates Islam is ultimately incompatible with Islam and wants to militarily dominate the Middle East. Well, perhaps the worst thing you could do is prove them right. (laughs) And it's a lot easier for them to depict Uh, us in those ways, if there are, 
increasing numbers of U.S. soldiers on the ground. Yes. If most of the military strikes are coming from U.S. aircraft, if most of the munitions drop uh, on the heads of, of individuals in the Middle East, sometimes civilians by accident, are all American-made. The, the ISIS problem is a global problem, but uh, at its root, at least now, it's, it's even more a regional problem. Uh, and, and it's a problem within Islam and, and within the, uh, the Arab state. And they, in my opinion, have to be uh, coaxed and coerced to take the leading role on the ground, especially uh, with combating the Islamic State militarily. So that, that's, that's a very broad and vague strategy and something that has to be worked out at much yeah. more detail. But for the sake of this conversation, that's my thought uh, on attacking ISIS across those two lines of effort. But what I will say is it's certainly a false choice to say, that to criticize military force or military operations is to, is to aid and abet ISIS. That is, that is highly untrue, and I would argue uh, only feeds their narrative that the United States ah. is, a, is a faux democracy uh, and, and that it, it's not what it uh, appears to be, because they, they often like to portray us as, uh, as hypocrites, and the last thing we want to do is prove them right and prove to them that, in fact, we do hate Islam or yes. that we are incompatible with Islam. Wow, thank you so much, Danny Shearson. Always interesting to talk to you. Always uh, good uh, advice, wisdom. Danny Shearson's new essay is The Hazards of Military Worship, and he's got a new book, an analysis of the Iraq War, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. You can also read his stuff on Tom Dispatch. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, and I uh, hope we'll talk to you again soon. Oh, I, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, and I'll talk to you very soon. All right, thank you. <laughs>